Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. While you're, while you're turning there, I want to read a scripture to you. I just feel compelled to read this. Yeah, that's the one. Galatians 6 9. I want to read Galatians 6 9. Because, you know, we're living in really trying times right now. Uh, our nation is going through very trying times. The church is going through very trying times. And uh, that's why I always tell you we can't segregate, we can't compartmentalize life. What happens in the church uh, affects what happens in the culture and vice versa. And there's a lot of people that are going through rough times personally, um, financially, emotionally. Uh, relationships are under attack in homes and in families and extended relationships, and I talk to, you know, I talk to Miss Bussy on a regular basis, and, and Miss Bussy, boy, she's a firebrand, and uh, she said, you got to watch the devil. She said, the devil's strategy is to wear you down and get you so tired that you just don't want to go anymore, and I said, that's true. It made me think of Galatians 6, 9. I love Galatians 6, 9. It's a scripture that I I stand on continually. It says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, God gave us the seasons naturally. You know, we're making the transition right now from winter to spring to summer. You're seeing the leaves bud out and the flowers bloom. You walk outside in the evening and just smell the sweet fragrance in the air. And it's a sign that the seasons are changing. And we go through seasons in our lives. Personally, corporately, nations go through seasons, the earth goes through seasons. And you might be in a real difficult season. You might be in the dark, bleak winter season of life right now. And I want to encourage you to not grow weary while doing good. If the enemy could have his way, the enemy would cause you to lose heart. He would cause you to faint. But the Bible says, those who wait upon the Lord shall not faint. They'll renew their strength like the eagle. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Those who wait upon the Lord. God will renew your strength. He'll cause you to mount up with wings as eagles. And I just want to encourage you, if you're going through a rough time right now in life, maybe you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. Maybe you don't know how that bill is going to get paid. Maybe you don't know how this relationship you're in is going to work out. I just want to encourage you to trust in the Lord. He is faithful, the Scripture says, even when we're faithless. And that's an awesome promise. Because sometimes we can get into doubt and unbelief, but God is never faithless. He is always faithful. So trust in Him. Lean upon Him. Find these scriptures like Galatians 6, 9. Mark them in your Bible and read them and meditate on them and trust in the promises of God. Philippians 1, 6 is another one. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we make poor choices. We think, how could God love me? How could God do anything with me? 
Yet Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. That's affirmative. That's a promise. Will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. When I first got saved, I, I was living any way but like a Christian. And the, the, the person that led me to the Lord one night in East Austin in a home gave me key scriptures. I didn't even have a Bible. She wrote them down on a piece of paper. And she said, you go buy you a Bible as soon as you can. And one of the scriptures that she wrote down was Philippians 1.6. And I memorized that scripture. And I would, I would remind myself every day. I'd remind the enemy every day when those thoughts would come into my mind. When those doubts would come into my mind. When I would hear the enemy just talking in my ear. Telling me, you're not really saved. You're really not a child of God. I would just quote that scripture. I'd say, but the scripture says, the word says, he who has begun a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And, and one thing I knew is I knew that God saved me. I knew that I was born again. I knew that God had done a miracle in my life. Whether anyone could see it, whether I could believe it, I knew it was true. Something in my heart of hearts told me that. And I knew that I was a new creation, that I was a new man in Christ. I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand the full impact of that. But I knew what the promise of the Scripture was. And I hung on to that promise. And sometimes that's all we can do is hang on to the promise of the Scripture. It's not dependent upon how you feel. It's not dependent upon what you can see. It's not dependent upon what other people say about you or to you. It's what God has declared in His Word. And if you're struggling today, if you're wondering what your future's going to hold, maybe as soon as tomorrow or next week or next month, I'm telling you what, you stand on the Word of God. You stand on the promises of God. You get this word out. You get the scripture out. And you begin to read and meditate. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Meditate in this word and on this word. Marinate yourself with the scripture and let God begin to do something in you. And he will take you from the season of your dark winter into the spring of a new life. I promise you he will. That is the way he has created the world that we live in. That is how our lives work in a small way and in grand ways. Trust him. He is trustworthy. Amen? Let's just pray right now. Father, I just pray right now for anyone here who might be in that place, Lord, in that, in that dark winter season. Father, I just pray even the springtime that is, is erupting and blooming forth around us would just be a sign, God, a sign of hope to them that, Lord, they can't see life right now, they can't see beyond the darkness right now, but, God, you've made a promise that goes beyond what we can see and what we can feel. And Father, I pray for those who might be in that season of life, Lord, where they're wondering, Lord, I declare this promise of Galatians 6, 9. Lord, they will not grow weary while doing good. They will reap in due season, Father God. You began a good work in them. You will complete the work that you have begun in them, even until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you declared heaven and earth may pass away, but your word would never pass away. So we stand on your word, God. We stand on your promises.
We trust in you. Our hope is in you. Not in our circumstances, not in this temporal world. Our hope, our trust is in the eternal God. Amen. Praise God. Be hopeful. Amen? Be hopeful in Jesus. Hope in Him. He is where your help comes from. Matthew 18, let's go there. Matthew 18, 18. Now we took, um, we began this verse three weeks ago. In the last two weeks, we took a little diversion to give us some context of what is being talked about here. And remember, this is understood within the context of the preceding 18 verses. Okay? Remember, there wasn't chapter and verse when Jesus spoke these words. And there wasn't chapter and verse when the apostles wrote these words. But uh, for us, chapter and verse has been put in there, and it's very helpful. But we also need to realize that chapter and verse doesn't determine the context. The text determines the context. So we come to Matthew 18, 18. Let's read it. Uh, actually, we're looking at Matthew 18, 17. I'm sorry, 18, 19, and 20 are the three verses we're going to be looking at today. So I'm just going to read those for you right now. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if, you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So as we look at Matthew 18, 18, we need to be reminded, I read a scripture to you a couple of weeks ago, uh, Matthew 6, 15, where Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we, we apply that, and, and of course I believe Jesus said that in terms of how we relate to one another. Uh, if someone commits a sin against you, uh, and that person comes to you, whether, really, whether they come or not, you need to be able to offer forgiveness. You know, we see this a lot of times in broken relationships. It might be a, a marriage that's broken. It might be a relationship between a, a parent and a child that's broken or a husband and wife. And, and oftentimes, one party is waiting for the other to offer or to ask for forgiveness. But God didn't wait for us to ask for forgiveness to send his son. And this is the pattern. Forgiveness is something that we need to offer before it's asked for. I need to be willing to forgive. Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, and those guys are uh, gambling over his cloak, his clothes, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They didn't ask for Jesus' forgiveness, but Jesus said, Father, give them forgiveness. And so this is a pattern. This is a lesson. This is for us. But sometimes, the person we have the hardest time forgiving, you know who that person is? It's yourself. Sometimes the hardest person for you to forgive is yourself. Sometimes everybody else around you has already forgiven you, and you're still hanging on to things that you have done, poor choices, mistakes, blunders that you have made, and you see the consequence of these things, and you're the one that, that has the hardest time offering forgiveness to yourself. Now, I'm not really into this whole, you know... I mean, I think our self-esteem should be based on who, our understanding of who we are in Christ. 
I need to understand that apart from Christ, I'm not worth anything. Apart from Christ, what the Scripture describes that I am is not a pretty picture. But God in His grace saved us in spite of that, and now we have been made alive in Christ. And so I need to understand how the Father values me, and I need to understand how Christ values me in the reality of the finished work of Christ. And if God has forgiven us, not only do we need to forgive one another, but you need to be able to forgive yourself as well. Amen? Because if you don't, and I don't know who this is for today, but, but a lot of people go around and they live their lives and they never forgive themselves for the things that they have done. And I'm telling you, if Christ has forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself, but you also need to forgive your brother. It, it, it works in any direction you want to take it. So in Matthew 6.15, this, this forgiveness that we have received is the forgiveness that we need to offer to others and to ourselves. Amen? In Matthew 6.15 and Matthew 8.18, Jesus is making a statement that goes to the heart of the gospel. And, and that's practically applied in the church. And the application of Matthew 18.18 18 is going to be understood by the preceding verse. So let's look at verse 17. The reason Jesus said verse 18 is because he said verse 17. And verse 17 says, and if he refuses, remember we went to the process of reconciliation, the process of restoration. If your brother sins against you, go to him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't hear you, take one or two witnesses with you. Where does that precedence come from? It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from, um, from Deuteronomy, Okay. And if he won't hear you and those witnesses, then take it to the church. If he won't hear the church, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the reason, before we dealt with these verses, the reason I took you to Matthew 16, um, before we dealt with this, was to understand Matthew 16, where Jesus is giving the authority to his apostles to establish the doctrines of salvation. Remember the scriptural authority? These guys completed the canon of scripture. Spiritual authority, they established the doctrines of salvation. Gospel authority, they went out and they proclaimed salvation. This is what you must do to be saved. Jesus gave that authority to his apostles. And so it's out of that authority that Jesus is saying this right now. He's talking about these relationships. And someone that refuses to be reconciled or be restored, he says, this is what they have become to you. Not because you made them be that, but because they will not be restored. And when that is done, he says... I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here is the practical application for the church. When one will not acknowledge their sin or their trespass and so receive forgiveness, or when one will not forgive men their trespasses. So in these verses, Jesus is revealing the spiritual authority of the church in relation to the gospel and how we walk out or how we walk that out as God's people who have been called 
out of darkness. Remember Ephesians 5, 8, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so we read this verse, and Jesus says, basically what he's saying is, let this person be to you as one not known by God and one who does not acknowledge God. This is what a heathen and a tax collector was. Now, if we just read these verses from a carnal or a natural understanding, these seem really harsh and really tough. But we need to understand what the heart of Jesus is here. The heart of Jesus is not to reject people. The heart of Jesus is to bring reconciliation and restoration. And so this is why I started out talking about forgiveness, because forgiveness must be received before forgiveness can be offered. It's like love. You know, the world has a kind of love, and the world talks about love, they write songs about love, they make movies about love, but that's not the love of God. That's a different kind of love. And so the world talks about forgiveness, but there's a forgiveness that comes from God that we cannot offer if we have not received it from God. Just like there is a love that we cannot love with if we have not received God who is love. Amen? So forgiveness has to be received before forgiveness can be offered. And forgiveness that is offered must be received. In either instance, what we do with forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation determines whether we are known to be in faith or in rebellion. So Jesus goes through this process and he says, if this person will not, if they won't repent, if they won't be restored to you, brother, then you have no choice. And so this is what he's saying. So we look at verse 19. In Matthew 19, 18, 19, it says, Jesus is affirming. This is the verse that says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So in this verse, Jesus is affirming the authority of God's word. And the context of Matthew 18, 19 is understood from verse 16. What he's saying in verse 16, he says, If He will not hear you, take with you one or two more. Well, where does that principle come from? It comes from Deuteronomy 19.15. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus quotes right there from Deuteronomy when he says that. And so notice that in verse 19, Jesus begins with the word again. Again, I say to you, indicating that he has said this before, or they have heard this before. What was the scripture that Jesus taught from? Remember, Jesus didn't have a New Testament like we do. He didn't preach out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and the letters to the Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. He didn't, because they didn't exist then. Jesus taught from what we today commonly referred to as the Old Testament. And so these guys, these apostles, these disciples of Jesus, they understood very well the law. They understood what Deuteronomy 19.15 said. They They were saturated with it. They understood it. This is the culture that they grew up in. And so remember, Jesus didn't come preaching and teaching anything new. He came preaching, teaching what was already written and what was already revealed He is now just coming and opening blind eyes and deaf ears so that they can hear and see and understand what God had revealed from the beginning all the way up until now. 
And so he's indicating that he said this before, Christ affirming Deuteronomy 19.15 in, in, in this verse of uh, Matthew. And he instructs us to take one or two witnesses with us on this second attempt at restoration. So remember, context always determines the application. If two or more agree concerning anything they ask, that's a powerful statement right there. Let's look at that statement. Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, we need to understand the context of this statement Jesus is making, okay? The context is dealing with the church's authority in matters that involve the people of God in the relationships that exist between those who call themselves brothers and sisters in the family of God. It's not a blanket statement that says, if you and I as believers agree on anything, it, it will be done. But yet, it is, isn't it? It is, and it isn't. It is a blanket statement. It's a pretty powerful statement. But does that mean that if I really, really, really want a red BMW convertible and I get one of you guys to agree with me about it, that God's got to do it for me? Is that what this verse is saying? It's not, this is not what this verse is saying. But yet, we can't misapply the verse, but we need to be really careful that we don't diminish the power of this verse either. Because Jesus is really saying something very powerful here to us, I believe. He's telling us in the context of our relationships with one another. Right? How is the Father glorified? So we... This is the importance of not taking a verse of Scripture out of its context and applying it any way that we want to. It's also important that we don't take a verse of Scripture and say that it can't be applied a certain way. So how do we, how do we determine how it can and how it can't be applied? Well, wisdom is one way, right? God wants us to use wisdom, have godly wisdom. The whole counsel of God is another way, right? God, there's a reason why God didn't just give us two or three verses. He gave us the whole Bible. And the whole Bible, which is the record of, in the beginning, before there was anything, God spoke and there was light, all the way to the consummation of all things this book deals with. And it's no accident that the last book in our Bible called the book of Revelation, it's not the revelation of what's going to happen at the end of the world. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we see is from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the written scripture, the purpose of this book is to reveal who to us? It is to reveal Christ to us. And as Christ is revealed to us, who is to be revealed through us? Christ. If Christ is in you, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is in you, Christ is in you for the purpose that he would be revealed through you, made manifest in your life. That his love, his light, his life would be manifest 
through your life. And so when we read a verse like this, we need to read it with the understanding of what God's ultimate purpose is. God's ultimate purpose is not about what kind of car I drive or how big of a house I live in. God's ultimate purpose is about the glory of the Father. John 15, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And what is the fruit a sign of? The fruit is a sign of the life of Christ in us. What is Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? He's talking about what happens when relationship is broken and how to bring that relationship back together. And he's saying we have the power and the authority to agree together concerning these things that there be restoration and reconciliation that the Father in heaven be glorified. Why? Because love is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And all of these things are indicative and they're consistent with relationships that are whole and healthy. And so we don't want to diminish this scripture in any way, but we don't want to misapply the scripture either. So the power and the unity of agreement in this verse is to facilitate discipline for the purpose of unity and restoration between men and so between God and man. Amen? So the power of agreement and the power of prayer work together. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. The power of agreement and the power of prayer work together. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. James chapter 4, you can turn there if you'd like, James chapter 4, verses 1. James says, James 4, 1 through 3, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Where do wars and fights come from among you? And I want you to see here that Paul and James both link wrath and doubting in their teaching about prayer. Jesus, when he makes his statement about two or more agreeing together, It's in the context of relationships being restored and reconciliation. And we see that prayer in the power of agreement is linked directly to how we relate to one another, our relationships with one another. Doubting leads to wrath, wrath leads to doubting, and they both hinder our prayers. James links wars and fights, we can call that wrath, among the brethren, to doubting and self-centeredness and unasked or unanswered prayer. We go back to the desire of Christ for his people, that they be one whole and healthy body, manifesting his love, that the world would know that we are his disciples. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another the way I have loved you, so you should love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. So let's go back to Matthew 18. So we go to verse 20. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, For two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. Here Jesus is continuing his thought. He says for, that that word for is there for a reason. And this is a continuation of his thought here. And what's happening here is Jesus is giving us, this phrase, together in my name, is giving us a picture of unity. Remember, two of you agreeing and gathered together in his name is a picture of unified prayer and unified purpose in the will of God. Amen? So Matthew 18, 18 through 20 is teaching us how to protect the unity of the house. Jesus knows the power of unity and the power of agreement and the power of coming to the throne of God, to the very throne of grace in prayer on behalf of his church. We see this in the latter chapters of John's Gospel. In John 17, the great prayer of Jesus when he is in the garden after the, after the Passover meal with his disciples. He's in between the Passover and his arrest to be crucified. And he's in the garden and he's praying. And he's praying for himself. He's praying for his uh, disciples. And he also prays for us. He says, I not only pray for these, Father, but I pray for those who will believe in me through them. That's us today. And his prayer was that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And so Jesus understood the power of agreement, the power of unity, the power of coming to the throne of grace in prayer for the church because that's exactly what Jesus did in his prayers. And who is the church? The church are his people and the church is his glory. Do you know that you are the glory of the Lord? This is, this is really a, a mysterious thing. And here we are sitting in a, you know, a, 30-something-year-old metal building. It's not very glorious, right? But yet, this around us is not the church. You're the church. It's you, each person sitting on these chairs that, that is the church. And the glory of God in a very, in, in a way that I can't comprehend, that I don't understand, the glory of God is bound up in you in the reality that you are the church, that you are in Christ, and that He is in you. And whether you feel very glorious today or not, I'm telling you what, you are the glory of the Lord. Because you are His people. You are His chosen people. You are His special treasure. You are the royal priesthood. You are this peculiar people that He by grace has chosen. And that makes you his glory. Paul writes this in his epistles. He, he writes these letters and he says to the churches, you are my glory. You are the Lord's glory. What's he mean by that? Because Paul understood 
the gloriousness of salvation. He understood what Christ did when he finished his work on the cross. He understood what Christ did when he ascended from that grave, when he ascended to the Father, and he made it possible for us to be raised in newness of life. And though we don't look very glorious, and though we don't act very glorious, and though we don't think of ourselves as being very glorious, I'm telling you what, you are the glory of the Lord. Because you are his people. Because you are one with him and he is one with you. We are joined to him. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are members of his body. That is truth. That is reality. And this is why Jesus is writing the words that he is writing. Jesus is writing these words. I'm sorry, he's speaking these words. These words that were written, that Jesus spoke. These words of Jesus that are written in Matthew 18 were were spoken before Jesus went to the cross. But Jesus is speaking these words to a church that does not exist yet, but will exist. And he didn't speak these words to us personally, but he spoke these words for us personally. That we would understand his heart and the unity that he has brought us into when he gave us life in the Son. So the unity of the house is not based on the consensus of the people. The unity of the house is based on the submission of all to the scriptural authority, the spiritual authority, and the gospel authority of the church as revealed and governed in the word of God. In other words, this is what determines. This is the authority right here. This is it. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The power of agreement is that the will, is that His will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Jesus said, This is how you are to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you see the heart of Jesus even in that prayer? In everything Jesus did, do you see his heart? So the authority given to the church to agree for necessary discipline is the same authority given to the church to agree for extravagant love, extravagant forgiveness, extravagant unity. It's the same authority he's given to us to agree that his will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Amen? So Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. 
And then we see Peter's response in verse 21, Matthew 18, 21. Peter is listening to everything Jesus has to say, all the way from Matthew 18, 3, all the way down to verse 20. Peter is listening to the words of Jesus, and he's understanding what Jesus is talking about. How do we know? We know he understands because of the question that he asked Jesus. He said, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That was hard for Peter to, to, to swallow. But here's the point, church. The point of these verses is not about punishing people who commit sin. It's about restoring people who commit sin. See, here's what the world wants to do, and here's what some Christians do. Some Christians do indeed take this Bible, and they use it as a sword to slice and dice people, to just beat them up and abuse them with. But the words of Jesus are not meant here to punish people. The words of Jesus here are meant to bring restoration and reconciliation among people. And the purpose of, dis of discipline is not punishment. Listen, it's a popular thing nowadays that we don't discipline our kids. You don't spank your kids because that's violent. Well, you know, Pastor Jeff, that's violence. So I don't spank my kid because I don't want my child to learn violent behavior. No, spanking your child is not violence. It can be. Fathers, mothers, don't spank your children violently. Don't spank your children out of anger. Discipline your children out of love, not out of violence. Your words can be violent. Your actions can be violent. Violence is an attitude that comes out of your heart. It's not your actions, it's the attitude behind your actions that determines whether it's violent or not. Discipline is not punishment. The purpose of discipline is not punishment. Punishment and discipline can be two very different things. Discipline is administered to bring about correction, to restore one to the right way or the right path. Jesus forgave our sins so that we could be restored to relationship with the Father. And we forgive one another our sins so that we can be restored to relationship with one another. And in so doing, we are also brought into right relationship with the Father. This is why Jesus said the words that he said in Matthew 6.15. If you don't forgive men their, their sins against you, your sins won't be forgiven. This is what, he, this is what he's talking about. This, it's the same principle. I've said this before. I'll say it again. It's the same principle John used when he said, don't tell me you love God, but you hate your brother, because if you hate your brother, the love of God's not in you. We forgive one another our sins so that we can be restored to relationship with one another. And when we're restored with one another, we're restored with the Father. If we're restored with the Father, we should be restored with one another. Amen? If we love the Father, we should love one another. If we love one another, it's a sign that we love the Father. See, we want to we compartmentalize and segregate things. But do you see what the Bible does? The Bible destroys all those divisions. The Bible breaks down all those walls of division that we want to put up there. Say, well, I love God, but I don't love you. No, 
The Bible says you take that wall of division down because that's impossible. Because if you don't love another, you can't love God. Who said that? The Bible said that. So we need to destroy these walls of division that we put up. That person that has done something that has caused an offense to be taken up, how are you going to handle that? Or maybe God has allowed something to happen in your life, and now there's a wall of offense. There's an offense you've taken up against God because God, you're God. You had to know this was going to happen, God. How could you allow this to happen to me? We, we take up offenses even against God. Those things have to be broken down. They have to be. They have to be broken down so that there can be restoration and reconciliation and peace and unity. And I pray that we will practice the extravagant love, the extravagant forgiveness and the extravagant unity demonstrated in Jesus Christ's love toward us. Now think about it. I challenge you to get your Bible out and to begin reading from Genesis and just read the first five books of the Bible. Just take your time and read through them slowly and meditate. Read through those first five books of the Bible and read through it asking God to reveal who we are in our sin. And you will see a picture of a holy God, a righteous God, a just God, perfect, absolutely perfect in His holiness. And if God would open your eyes to be able to see him in that way, it will do to you what it did to the prophet when Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. And it will give you an understanding of the grace of God perhaps you have not had. To know that what God has forgiven me of because of who I was in my sin. It's a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to see the nature of God's holiness. You read those first five books of the Bible, it'll scare you. It scares me. But it makes me so very thankful for the grace of God. And don't say, well, that's the Old Testament. It doesn't apply anymore. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, sir. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't cut half your Bible out and chunk it away and say it doesn't apply anymore because now we're started, Matthew 1.1. No, sir. Can't do that. That's not what Jesus did. The gospel we have today came out of the first five books of the Bible and all the rest of the writings and all the rest of the prophets. The God we worship today, the God who saved us today is the same God you'll read about in those first five books of the Bible. But what those those books will do, what that law will do is reveal 
the nature and character of our sinfulness. And it will nail us to the wall and make us wonder why on God's green earth did he ever save me. I don't know why he saved me. Because I'll tell you right now, I did not deserve to be saved. But I know he did. Jesus came to forgive your sins so that you could be restored to relationship with the Father. And that same forgiveness that brings you restoration with the Father is the same forgiveness that must cause us and all who call themselves the church to walk restored, to love one another with his extravagant love, to forgive one another with his extravagant forgiveness. I pray that as we agree together in unity, gather together in his name, his will shall be done on earth in his church, in our lives, even as it is in heaven. By this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I'm going to leave you with this as I remind you what those fruit are. And then we will pray together. By this, My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ.